0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Generation Y ad free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Apple Podcasts.
1: You know, that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere online, in store, and social media and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store, for accepting payments to manage inventory. It has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one true source. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash gen Y, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash gen to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash gen Take a moment to get a word from our sponsor, Audible. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre. You got bestsellers, new releases, and mysteries and thrillers. I'm currently listening to A Rip in Heaven by Janine Cummings. It's a true story that happened in April 1991 about some teenagers, family members that were violently attacked. Two would perish and the one surviving one would end up being accused of the crime. But the reality of what happened is much worse. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash GWP or text GWP to 500, 500. That's audible.com slash GWP or text GWP to 500, 500.
0: How you doing tonight, Aaron? I'm doing pretty good, Justin. Thank you for bringing me something to drink. No problem. Uh, what, is black butt porter? Black butte porter? No, whatever. The E silent in my world. Uh, CrimeCon 2017 Generation Y podcast will be there. Will you? If you haven't heard of CrimeCon, it's a weekend of motives, murder, and mystery. Other podcasters will be there.
1: There's all kinds of different exhibits and events and panel speaking. There's going to be uh, investigators and authors and podcasters there all doing different things and talking about different cases. Should be pretty fun.
0: Save 20% on tickets now using our code GENWHYCC20. That's G-E-N-W-H-Y-C-C-20. What else do we need to talk about, Aaron? iTunes. If you're an Apple user and you've wanted to get access to our premium downloads, which are merely a way to support the show and get extra episodes from us, then you're in luck because we have added a number of our premium episodes to iTunes. So go out to the music store and type in Generation Y, Generation Y Podcast, and you'll be able to find our premium episodes. So thank you for your support. I think we have five of them up currently on iTunes, right? Yes. Cool. We, we put up the five that we feel most needed to be up there.
1: And there will be more in the next month or so.
0: We are working on more. Thank you. <laughs> Tonight's case, I think we chose this one because it has to do with multiple topics, but primarily betrayal. Yeah. And forgiveness.
1: I would say those are the two primary things. But
0: Right. They sort of go hand in hand. The topic tonight is Bart Whitaker Thomas Bart Whitaker, Sugarland, Texas, December tenth, two thousand three. Kent and Trisha Whitaker have two sons, Bart, twenty four, and Kevin, nineteen. Because Bart is graduating college, they decide to celebrate. He really wanted to go to the Papado restaurant, which is a seafood restaurant. Is it? It's a Cajun kind of place. So they go there and eat. He's given a present, which is a Rolex watch. Sort of a, here's a graduation gift for you. And the college he was attending, Sam Houston State University. So after dinner, they return home. The youngest, Kevin, who's 19, he walks up to unlock the front door. And his mother's right behind him. Kent had slowed down because he knows Bart was running back to get his phone. He had said, hey, forgot my phone. I'll be right back. But he's hanging back. He wants to wait on his son. And Kevin and Tricia, they would be shot in their chests as soon as they entered the home. In fact, didn't Trisha say something?
1: Uh, Kevin's shot first in the chest. He falls down. Trisha says, oh, no. And the father, Kent, he kind of flinches and turns to the side. So when he's shot, it's he's hit in the arm or his shoulder, or his, his upper right chest, which is kind of his shoulder, but from the front, but he misses the center mass shot. So he ends up living, but he does fall down and his father will yell out to his son and wife, are you okay? And he only hears gurgling coughs.
0: And the gurgling they find out it's Trisha and it's because her lungs are filling with blood. Bart will
1: run past them and chase the alleged intruder gunman
0: through the house, and into the kitchen. The gunman would escape. From there, Patricia would die at the hospital. Kevin was pronounced dead at the scene. Kent and his son, Bart, both suffer injuries to their upper right arm shoulder areas. And the police, of course, would want to talk with them. They both saw the gunman. And as we said, Bart chased him through the house.
1: The neighbors calling 911, saying that, You know, the whole family's been shot. Bart will end up calling 911 also from his phone. And when they ask him to describe the shooter, he says it was a black man.
0: Yeah, I think what they said was they they asked him, what did he sound like? Did he sound like a white man or a black man? And he said it sounded like a black man. Now, Kent would give his description. He said that he could see the skin in the eye holes of a mask. And he said it was white skin. Officer Phil Priebus
1: is the first one on the scene. He finds that there's a missing, there's some missing items from the house. There's a phone that's missing and it ends up being Bart's phone. And there's a glove that's been left. So he says the, the house appears to be rifled through. Drawers are opened. Uh, not a lot of things are thrown around, though. The police will assume this was a break-in or burglary gone wrong. Now, there is a safe upstairs, and it has been pried open. And there's a 9mm Glock that has been left at the scene. It ends up being the same weapon that was held in the safe. So, kind of weird that this robber, this person would have come in, gone right for the safe. They had to know, they had to have prior knowledge of where the safe was and what was in it. Now, we said that there was a missing cell phone. Well, it was the same phone that Bart had just gone and retrieved from his car and was checking messages on. So he goes into the kitchen chasing this guy. He is shot and the shooter leaves the gun but takes his phone. That's what it seems like. Kind of weird. There's that. (laughs) Uh, But again, the police that are on the scene, they just think that somebody was stealing from the house and... This is how it goes. Now, where the safe was located, they they would have had to have known exactly where to go. This was not out in the open. They, they couldn't have just wandered around and come across the safe. They went directly to it. The safe was pried open with a crowbar that had blue paint on it. So there's blue paint scuff marks all over the outside of the safe, too. So they would have had to have known to bring this device along with them, this crowbar along, to get into the safe, to then get whatever was in the safe, which was pretty much a gun that they used to shoot the entire
0: family with. The more you think about it, the more weird it gets. Now, the gun that they find is left near the back door, and it's a 9 millimeter Glock. They will test this gun, and they'll find that there's a partial palm print, but it's not enough to really use it. It's, it's not enough to find a a match a, yeah find a match for
1: and they have the glove which they tried testing for dna and stuff but no real hits on that they find four shell casings from the gun no fingerprints or anything on that either not a lot of leads with the evidence inside the house
0: but they did see that the ammunition used was corbon ammunition and it was only found in the gun and there was no other Corbon ammunition found in the house at all. They had loaded all 10 rounds into the gun and those 10 rounds were, were the Corbon ammunition, but no other ammunition from Corbon was found in the house.
1: And it's never really said if the brother who's owned the gun, if he'd loaded that ammunition or if the shooter loaded it. And I know that I have different types of rounds in my gun at home than my regular bulk ammunition because I put my hollow points in it, and then I have my bulk ammunition laying around. So I kind of get why it might have different ammunition in it, but never really get to the bottom of that. That same night, uh, Bart and his father are taken to the hospital, and they're in separate rooms. The investigators are asking them all the questions they can They say that Bart's father, Kent, was pretty upset at first and had a lot of uh, animosity towards whoever did this. But then they say that he becomes very passive and almost accepting and and sort of zen-like because he wants to try to figure out a way to forgive the shooter. The shooter, he doesn't know who it is. He doesn't know anything about this person. But... Their first night in the hospital, he's trying to figure out a way to forgive this person, and he's trying to find strength in God to do it. Bart, on the other hand, just doesn't have a lot to say about anything. He gives statements of, this is how it went down, and that's it. So uh, they have a funeral for the mother and his brother.
0: Right, and they have more than a 1,000 people attend the funeral for the mother and her son. right. So... They're trying
1: to talk to them in the hospital. Uh, Sergeant Slot is the investigator that's been assigned to the case. All he knows is that they were at a graduation dinner for Bart graduating from this university, and they came home and were ambushed or interrupted something. But Slot gets a tip, right?
0: Yeah, they get a phone tip that Bart's not actually enrolled at school, so they subpoena the records from the school, Sam Houston State University. And they find out that he's nowhere close to being a graduate. Not only that, but he's on academic probation.
1: They also find out that Bart has been living in a townhome that's not on campus. They let his father know this while he's in the hospital, that he is not enrolled in the college. He did not graduate. And his father gets in his wheelchair Rolls down the hall and starts yelling at his son saying, because you're lying about these things, now they think that you did this. And his father absolutely does not suspect Bart having any sort of hand in this because somebody was inside of the house shooting the family and shot Bart. So, Bart wasn't inside the house with a gun. So, his father is now mad at him because Bart has been living in a townhome, in like a nice part of town on his parents' dime and just partying
0: for the last few years. Yeah, it's so strange. He's 24 years old, and the school has him listed as a freshman who's on academic probation. So you can see there wasn't really any progress in his schooling. Bart will tell his dad that his mother did know that he was not graduating college. But we'll never
1: know because she's been gunned down.
0: Yeah, it's his word
1: being that he's lied to his father this entire time about whether or not he was going to college, eh, his word doesn't have a lot of weight to it. No movement on this case, but Bart will move out of the townhome back into his father's house. He moves back home, and his father and him will do Bible study together, uh, become get closer through God, through church, through Bible study. And Bart will be the son that he never was before. They will become closer than they ever have because up until this point, his him and his father were a little estranged. He just didn't interact much with his family at that point. When he was a younger guy, yes, they, they were close. But in the
0: last few years, they were... How did he describe it? Like ships passing in the night. But, but now that they're living together again, now it's, oh, now we ride bikes together. Now we read the Bible together. They're bonding in a way that probably is very therapeutic for his father at this point. Seven months later,
1: seven months, zero leads, no movement on the case. They get a phone call from a man named Adam Hip, and he tells the police that Bart had approached him 2001, prior to all this, years ago with a plan to kill his family. The plan to kill his family is remarkably similar to what went down, where he was going to get his family out of the house, and the gunmen would go into the house and get the gun and ambush his family as they walked in. And Sergeant Slot takes this to the father, but he doesn't believe it.
0: Yeah, you wonder why he did this. I would think that he did it so he could drive a wedge between them so that he could get more progress on this case. The father is really standing by his son at this point. That's not a wall he's going to break down, but if he can show that there was prior planning to this, that this wasn't just the first time, then perhaps the father might see his son at a different light and then start to talk and perhaps turn on his son. Isn't that how you would imagine this?
1: Yeah. Slot goes so far to get Adam to do a phone tap and call Bart and talk about the planning and the murders and whatnot. Bart doesn't want to talk about the details, but he offers Adam 20 grand hush money and sends him uh, $250 as a down payment on this hush money and the courier service that he has delivered the money. Oh, two hundred forty! You <laughs> couldn't come up with that last ten bucks.
0: <laughs> well, it's strange because, you know, he's telling him I will pay you twenty grand, but then he only mails him no. two hundred forty dollars. Hold on, he uses a me- a messenger service to deliver this
1: money, and he signs it K Soze, which if anyone has seen the movie Usual Suspects, which I know is Aaron's favorite movie, yeah. <laughs> Kidding. He hates that movie. I liked it. But he signs it Kaiser Soze, which is the mastermind murderer in that movie. Slot takes this to the father. Father still is not accepting that his son had a prior attempt on his life.
0: Yeah, and the the detectives had worked with Hip prior to these conversations to tell him what he should be working on in the conversation. They're hoping to get really good information out of Bart.
1: And another police department in Waco contacted the Sugarland Department and said "This was going to go down and they actually contacted his father two years prior said "This is a real threat, but again, Kent did not believe it would not accept that this is a real threat, and that his son Bart would do anything
0: of the sort. The interesting thing is he told the detectives that, but then he still did go to Bart and asked him about it. Bart said, no, no, no. I, I think he said something like, oh, I was drinking. And, you know, we were just talking and it, it wasn't anything. So Kent dropped it.
1: Kent and Bart are very close now because he's living back at home. But because Sergeant Slot and these other detectives are reaching out to him, he sits Bart down and asks him directly. He says, I've already forgiven the shooter. You tell me if it was you or if you had anything to do with this. And Bart says, no, I did not, Dad. But he informs Bart that the investigators are looking at him as the prime suspect. And that this is when Bart flees. And he dumps his SUV and
0: disappears. Yeah, he leaves it outside of an apartment building. And yeah, he leaves his vehicle running. It's a Yukon. And... He's gone. Where he goes, we know now that he goes to Mexico. He goes 50 miles south of the border, and he has purchased someone's identity from them, a man named Rudy Rios. So Bart now is Rudy Rios, and he has a backstory. He was a soldier. He's wounded, and he didn't want to go back to military service, so he's hoping people won't talk about him. Please don't give me away. I just I just want to be happy.
1: Yeah, he's kind of playing an AWOL kind of soldier who's been wounded in the war. And these this family takes him in and says, well, we'll take care of you. And he's going to their church and
0: a good Christian. He fled in late June of 2004, just to give you an idea of the timeline here. So it's about within seven months or so of the actual attack on his family.
1: Still, detectives have not actually made a move on him. He just felt the heat and wanted to get out.
0: But something disturbing happens because while he's down in Mexico, he meets this woman at church. Her name is Cindy Lucilina, and she played the guitar in the church. She seems taken by him. They get close, and her family will end up hiring him to work at their family business. It's a furniture store.
1: Her father says that... They take him in as their son, like one of the family. So he is very much accepted, and they don't think much about him, and they believe his story about being wounded in the war. Take a moment to get a word from our sponsor, Simply Safe. Did you know that according to FBI property crime data, most home break ins happen in broad daylight? As the day goes longer this spring, protect your home with Simply Safe. It's the award-winning home security system I use and recommend. Both experts and customers love Simply Safe for its comprehensive protection. It was just named Best Home Security System of 2024 by U.S. News & World Report. Its advanced technology protects every home window and door, while cameras keep watch for suspicious activities 24-7. There's no long-term contract. You'll get the emergency response you need at half the cost of traditional home security at less than a dollar a day. You install the system your way. It's easy to do it yourself. I did mine. It was about 20, 25 minutes from start to finish. But if you're not comfortable with that, you can have the professionals do it. Protect your home today. Generation Y listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system. When you sign up for fast protect monitoring, just visit simplysafe.com Gen Y. That's simplysafe.com Gen Y. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Take a moment to get a word from our sponsor DoorDash. If you're looking to get more from delivery, you can get it with Dash Pass by DoorDash. Plus, you can get 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for Dash Pass. Dash Pass is only $9.99 a month. You get special access to exclusive promotions, member only menu items, and with Dash Pass, you get $0 delivery fees and lower service fees on eligible orders. I use it all the time. Sometimes I just can't leave the house. I have too much going on. I got to edit, and uh, I'll get my food delivered today. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and more. Sign up for Dash Pass today only on DoorDash. That's 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Use code GENY24. That code again, GENY24. Subject to change, terms apply.
0: But while he's spending time with Cindy, she ends up getting into an argument with her mother and she breaks her guitar. She's that upset. There's Rudy Rios and he's comforting her And he says, no, 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 calm down. Everything's going to be okay. We can just kill your parents. Just matter of factly, we can
1: just kill your parents because that's the solution.
0: That will take care of all of her problems. She wouldn't ever have another argument with her mother. And at this point, she's a little weirded out by by Rudy too. This to me is a very telling moment because up to this point, you have this well-regarded family. The Whitaker family, they live in a nice area. They're successful. They're considered a very moral family. The eldest son has now gone on the run, and he's under an alias. But he's taken in by this family. It just pops out of his mouth, like you said, very casually. We can just kill your parents. No problem. These aren't people that have known him. They're getting to know him. This is not something he said 15 months or 25 months later, he says this as if it's almost normal. Investigators
1: have been
0: stalled for about two years
1: when a man named Steve Champagne pays them a visit.
0: Yes, this is in, what did say, August of 2005. He comes in and tells them, I was the getaway driver that night,
1: Chris Brashear was the shooter, and Bart was the mastermind behind it all. He tells them everything. You know, this guy just walks in out of the blue, tells them the story. He also tells them there's a duffel bag at the bottom of a lake, and it will have everything that you need. So they get a dive team together, and two years after murder, they're able to go find this duffel bag at the bottom of a lake.
0: I think it takes several dives, but they end up finding it.
1: In this duffel bag, they find a blue crowbar and match it to the safe. They find a glove that looks remarkably similar to the one that was left at the scene, and they find a water bottle, and they take the cap off, and they swab it, and they get a DNA profile that matches Chris, the gunman. So we're- now we're
0: not talking about just someone's word here. Now we have DNA evidence. They also
1: find bullets in this bag. What kind of bullets were those? Corbon. Oh, yeah. And the last thing they find is Bart's phone. Now, it's hard for them to say this is Bart's phone, but I mean, come on. (laughs) They have a crowbar, a DNA match, a missing glove, and there's a phone in there. And that was the only thing missing from the night was Bart's phone, which why the assailant would take the phone but leave the gun doesn't make any sense. So Steve has blown this whole thing up. They know exactly what happened.
0: Yeah, this is not a done it.
1: But they still don't know where Bart is, but they, they arrest Steve and they arrest Chris. Chris, well, they actually called Chris in for questioning and he just said, eh, I don't want to talk to you guys. And he left. So then they got warrants and took care of Chris.
0: He said, I want to go. And they said, sure, yeah. you can go.
1: Yeah, because nobody seems to say, hey, I don't want to talk to you anymore. I just want to leave. And you can do that during a police interview.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, the great thing, you know, for the detectives, though, they know they can go and get him. Yeah, they can really apply some pressure then, because when they pick him up now, he knows, yeah, I left before. I'm not leaving now. Yeah, not without talking.
1: So they have Chris and Steve. And in September of 2005, a man calls the investigators says my name is rudy rios and it's not bart but it's the real rudy and he says yeah i sold i sold bart my id and i have information leading to where he is rudy knows that there's a ten thousand dollar reward or something to that effect for the apprehension of bart he's calling to collect this money he's, he's like i know where he is so give me the reward that'll be nice he'll get paid twice yeah yeah he got one for his id and one for you know turning that
0: guy in they have Bart arrested
1: and extradited back to the states
0: so he spent a total of about 15 months in mexico as a free man
1: in the car ride
0: oh, yeah. back
1: uh with sergeant slot sergeant slot is Trying to figure out, like, how did you accomplish this? How did you get Steve and Chris to do this? And Bart says, "I just told them my family was rich, and I just offered them whatever they wanted." He says, "Well, did you pay them?" He says, "No, he didn't pay them a dime." A getaway driver and a hired gunman, and he just got these guys to do this. And he fully admits on the car ride. He's like, no, I, I planned this. And he's very just matter of fact about it, which is odd.
0: So it's almost like he's, it's, it's the lure. It's the possibility of a lot of money coming in that got them to do this.
1: But Bart will say himself, he goes, I don't care about money. I just knew they did. So I offered them money, but I never even paid them. Now, Bart obviously doesn't have any money of his own it's all of his family's money but yeah he just is very matter-of-fact about that I don't know how you can talk people into murdering your family but he had asked you know hip earlier and then he got these two guys to actually do it
0: yeah in some cases people will use other people in this way but they'll say oh I'm being abused or they've done this to me or they've done that and in this case it really seemed like it was just the money. I will get a million dollars and then I'll be able to share it with you.
1: Yeah, Bart gives some explanations to people saying he hated his family because he was alive and they were the reason why he was alive. He says that he was playing a game with them of like a game of chicken who will flinch first, but he was planning the demise of his family for years before the actual event happened.
0: Right, this is where we get into the why of it. Why did he do it? Now, Bart has his own answer for this. And like you already said, he blamed them for his his being alive, which is a very strange reason. But he also says that he blames them for the man he had become. And we get into this situation where he compares himself to his brother Kevin a lot. And he sees Kevin as this successful and loved son where he feels like a failure and not as loved
1: Kevin's the the perfect child and he's nothing so he's trying to show that oh I'm going to college and I'm doing all these good things and it's all a lie and when that comes to a head
0: it's like his whole world shattered now keeping up with the Joneses yeah it's that I'm not as successful as these other people, or as my own brother. And it creates this animosity. Now that's if you trust Bart's word. That's what he is telling everyone.
1: His father doesn't seem to think there was any problem in the household ever growing up. He feels that even after this event, things got really good between him and Bart. And he even says something to the effect of, you know, this is God's way of bringing us together closer or something.
0: Well, as, we, as you talked about, he wanted to forgive whoever had done this. Well, there's a moment when he visited Bart, and he hadn't seen him in 50 months because Bart had fled the country. He said they were separated by this, what he describes as bulletproof glass. He said he looked down, and I think I told him that I missed him, and he looked good. And Bart said, Dad, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry for everything. I'm going to do everything in my power to make things as easy and painless for everyone. And Kent said this is when he realized that his son was guilty and ready to confess. It's that moment where, up till now, Kent really wasn't accepting it fully, that his son could have been behind all this. But because of this moment where his son is looking him in the eyes and apologizing, not saying he did it. He's saying, I'm so sorry. So it's it's inferred. But Kent takes it as he's ready to talk. He's ready to just come clean about everything. And I think this, in my opinion, reinforces Kent's decision to forgive because he feels like there's remorse here, that his son has understood the impact of what he's done and, and why it was wrong. They have all these guys. They
1: try... Steve and Chris. Steve, the getaway driver, gets 15 years and is eligible for parole in 2020. Chris gets a life sentence, quote unquote, but he's eligible for parole in 2035. What happens to Bart?
0: Well, even before trial, Bart's attorney is Dan Cogdell, and he's actually a friend of the family. He wants to do a proffer where they suggest to the state that, hey, look, we'll admit to everything and we'll accept life sentences for each of the victims, you know, his family members. So they'll do stacked sentences where he has to serve each life term in a row consecutively. And so he would have to serve out one life sentence and then another, which means he would never get out. So he's offering himself on a platter to them saying, hey, we don't even have to go to trial. I'll just admit to everything. His attorney offers this to the prosecutor.
1: Just they don't want the death penalty because this is Texas.
0: And he even has the support of the family. His father, his mother's family, everybody's saying, don't do the death penalty. We're good with life in prison. And nothing comes of this. And this actually comes up at trial. During the trial, the prosecutor and Bart have a moment where the prosecutor hands him what I think is the proffer and says don't read this out loud read it for yourself and tell me did you write this and he looks down and reads it and then in his own head and then looks up at the prosecutor and says I did not I didn't write this well earlier in the trial he had admitted to writing it with his attorney so it's kind of a confusing moment but what the prosecutor will say is that the reason they didn't take this proffer and use it is because they didn't feel there was any remorse in it. It felt very cold, just like, okay, fine, we'll do this time and take the death penalty and the trial off the table, and we'll just, I'll just go to prison. And maybe it's because they're in Texas. And it, you know, It feels like a Texas thing where they say, you've done this horrible, horrible crime. You need to pay for it with your life. And so even though they have this guy ready to put himself on a platter, that's not good enough because now they can use the death penalty and prosecute him to the fullest extent of the law in court.
1: Yeah. And they they got a open and shut case on him. So they can get the death penalty.
0: They, yeah. There's no wiggle room, is there? No. I no. mean, what he said when he was being driven back, uh, the evidence offered by Champagne and by Brashier this is it's too much i think because it's so easy to prosecute him that they don't even want to entertain an offer because they don't want to deal with someone that they have no respect for
1: i didn't read into the proffer the same way the, the prosecutor did just cuz i didn't think that that's where you would show remorse i i figured it was just a legal deal and it just it would come off cold cuz it's just like hey if this then that but Apparently, prosecutors wanted to hear some sort of remorse in there. They didn't get it. If you even watch or listen to Thomas Bart Whitaker today, he actually doesn't really show any remorse to this day. He says that that's another person that did that, and he doesn't go by Bart anymore. He goes by Thomas now, his first name. He admits to it. He at least acknowledges his actions. But when you ask him, about remorse it's not it's just not there it's not there to the point where I don't think he knows what emotion is
0: so this case is open and shut there's no mystery here other than is Thomas as he would like to be called a remorseful person does he understand what he did was wrong has he made progress in this time since this all went down I think we can argue that there was no progress made at all until he gets back to Texas. Because when he's in Mexico, he actually tells his girlfriend there, we can just kill your parents. When Cindy's father talks about him, he says, we loved him like a son. Bart has asked at some point in an interview, they said this about you. What do you think? Did you love them? He doesn't use the word love. And that's one thing I've noticed. You know, He's been interviewed a number of times. He puts himself out there a bit. But you'd never get the feeling that there's a lot of feeling behind him, behind his face, behind his words.
1: You know, everyone wants to hear what are, what are the pre-podcast debates that Aaron and I have. And we actually didn't record it, but I'm going to tell you what it was. Aaron said he did this for the money. And, well, what did you say? I don't want to put words in your mouth.
0: I think the money factors in. I don't think it's the first factor, but I think it's the second factor because... <clears throat> This is a guy who couldn't complete college. He was still registered as a freshman. He was on academic probation. He had no real prospects. He was working at the Bentwater Country Club, which is where he worked with Stephen Champagne and Chris Brashear. I mean, he wasn't going anywhere in life. Sure, his parents had some money. They had a a share in a construction company, and they were worth well over a million dollars. But he didn't have anything. His brother was doing well in life, but he wasn't. He didn't have what it takes. And I think he thought that he could kill his parents and he would be set up for life. And we worked this out during our discussion. <laughs> the fact that he would tell his girlfriend in Mexico, which I don't even think it was a serious girlfriend for him, but he told her, oh, we can just kill your parents. It shows how he is emotionless. He yeah. doesn't have these feelings. When, when I posted about this case to Instagram, I posted the picture that was taken right before they went to dinner and you can see that he's flipping you the bird. Bart is flipping the bird to the camera. I'm sure it was subtle at the time, but that moment is captured and I think it's because he's like, F you guys, you're about to go down. Yeah. This is it.
1: He knows. You know, there's an argument over what's the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath. I would side that he is a sociopath. For him to be able to lie for years saying that he's going to college when he lives in this town home at the country club and even go so far as to tell his family I'm graduating celebrate me all about me and then going on to we can just kill your parents I agree with Aaron money is a factor but I just think this guy's wired wrong and he's a complete sociopath and just doesn't have any sort of feelings towards his family or anything for that matter. You know, he goes to church, he reads the Bible, he does these things, but he does it to fit in. He does it to appear normal because he knows that he's not a regular person. He's not like me or you. He is more of a a Ted Bundy or a Richard Ramirez. He's not a regular guy who just had a Dark time in his life. There's something seriously wrong with him,
0: right? When he flees to Mexico, he did it on his father's dime, just oh, like yeah. he did everything else. And I think when we look over this whole thing, Bart was never going to make it, and everything he did was because his family had money. And so I do think the the money does play a factor because if he kills them, He's He set. He has their money. He doesn't have to work. He doesn't have to go to school. He doesn't have. That's to do the anything. way he sees it. I think. Oh. But now, obviously, you know, when, when he flees to Mexico, he's abandoning that because now he's looking pretty guilty at that point. Yeah. Then it kicks into survival mode. From there on out, he sees it as I am going to survive. And he does that by getting in good with this family, with this young woman. All with lies
1: and manipulation.
0: Lies. And then he goes back to Texas. And what does he have left? In February of 2004, according to Stephen Champagne, Bart told him, My dad survived. This isn't over. Now, read into that how you will. But from the moment he gets out of the hospital, all the way up through his capture, and even today, he buddies up with his dad. And I think it's because his dad is still his life raft. Mm -hmm. He wanted his dad dead, but the fact that his dad has survived and isn't going anywhere anytime soon well, that's all he's got. So he's going to hold on to his dad.
1: Yeah, but does he actually have a real relationship with his dad? His dad absolutely feels like they do. And his dad visits him on death row once a week, and they connect, and they talk, and they bond. And that bond is very, very real to his father. And you can't deny it. I question if it's real on the other side of that, the glass in that prison. Bart's gone on to say that the prison conditions are are horrible, which I imagine so. I mean, the food and the the bedding and everything is always bad, and, and especially death row.
0: And what little they have does get taken away. Thomas Bart Whitaker filed a class action lawsuit against the state for cruel and unusual conditions on death row. They don't have any TVs, no telephones, bad food, poor medical care. He feels like they're being mistreated. As human beings, we need to have a minimal expectation of humanity here. And he feels like on death row, they don't have that. Now, I've seen pictures of where they're being kept. It It, looks bad. It does look bad. But I think that he might be speaking to a lot of deaf ears here because most people would say, you put yourself in that condition.
1: I, I think he even makes the comment like, we're not trying to make the Hilton up here. We're just trying to reach a level of decent human living
0: no matter how little respect I seem to have for Bart Whitaker I really do feel like our prisons are not up to par they they need to be improved because even if you're on death row you need to be respected somewhat I mean you can't just be treated like an animal and have your bedding taken away your toothbrush taken away your punishment is coming to do some of these things that are happening to these prisoners on death row. It just seems like bullying. And it's not necessary. Who has the authority here? Well, the prisoners don't, right? That's the one part of the prison that seems to be enforced. If you're on death row, you have less rights than any other prisoner. And you're living in solitary. I think they need to act like they have the power and not get so petty with the prisoners. That's my feeling on it.
1: Well, there's a quote that says a civilization is measured by how it treats its weakest members by Gandhi. Some people rephrase this to a civilization is measured by how it treats
0: its inmates. You have the power and you have imprisoned these people. He's pushing the blame away and he's trying to focus on how he's being mistreated. I'm like a lot of people. I would just like to actually hear him confront what he did and take responsibility for it.
1: So, Bart's been very outspoken and kind of an advocate for trying to improve prison conditions. I can agree with him on that, but I can agree with horrible people if they say one plus one is two. I can say, yeah, I agree with Hitler that one plus one is two, but it doesn't mean that I sympathize too much with them. Uh, I I guess I only sympathize here because I have to assume that there is something very wrong with Thomas that he would do these things. He does get the death sentence. Uh, He has not been executed yet. His father has forgiven him, and his father written a book about forgiveness, goes around and speaks about forgiveness. His father is also remarried and, and moving on with his life. But when it comes to the death penalty, we mostly care about the victims and them getting justice. We don't care about the family of the accused, because we apply some sort of guilt by association. We don't want to deny justice to the victims. What does it mean when the victim is the family, a father who is about to lose his only son, the only thing that he has left by putting Bart to death? Who are we getting justice for? I mean, we're getting justice for his his slain brother and mother, but the only surviving victim here loves his son and has forgiven him it's kind of a iffy situation to me.
0: Yeah. uh, Thomas Bart Whitaker has been very outspoken about a number of things. He has a blog. It's minutes before six. Well, at least that's where you can find it. And I've heard that he has a friend from Australia that writes it up for him, but very well written articles. And if you want to hear about the lack of real medical care in prison or how horrible death row is in Texas or, how little he likes Trump, then feel free to read these articles. But I found it really interesting that throughout his articles, he writes as though he's a regular person. Bart is gone. Now we just have Thomas. And Thomas has a lot of things that he wants to say. But I read what he's saying, and it it troubles me because he never seems to take responsibility. ever. And I understand. Look, his father's already forgiven him. And maybe that's what gives him this avenue to just move forward and not have to face the past. But society as a whole is looking at this, I'm sure, when they, when they read about this, when they see it, even during probation hearings, which he will never be part of, but we are always looking for, is this person remorseful? Do they realize what they have done and the impact on all these other people, all these people that were affected by his decisions? That's not there. I don't even remember how many articles I've read by him, but he seems to be on a high horse about many, many things. But this is a guy who's done something despicable. He had his own family members shot. His desire was to see them dead. And only now that he's been caught and his plan didn't quite succeed, does he seem to act like he's a new man and he's moving forward and he's going to fight for the other prisoners and he's going to tell you how to vote and... I'm sorry, but he he lost me way back when because I don't think he's a person with feelings. Now, we, we could say that maybe he's...
1: A sociopath or something.
0: Yeah, he's troubled in a way that really can't be fixed, but, man, he sure rolls as if he's a guy who doesn't have any issues.
1: His his diary entries or journal blog posts are, are interesting. I I read a lot of his earlier ones, which were pretty straightforward, like anybody would write, oh, I'm in this hellhole and I'm having trouble living this way because it's not a natural place to be for most of us. Uh, I didn't read his later one, so I saw his one about Trump, but who really cares? I mean, he, he can't vote. He has no He has no real impact anymore. I feel for his father, but I don't know how I feel about him. <laughs> it just doesn't really matter to me because he absolutely planned this and I don't think he's there's no way to reform this person I don't think if you let him out I would still consider him a danger to society
0: yeah the one thing that I've noticed is people that forgive it seems as though they forgive because that's what they're asked to do but I think it also helps them it helps them cope with a situation like this that most of us are unprepared for You sort of let it go. You say, this is not my responsibility to let it eat me alive anymore. I'm letting it go because what damage has been done is already, there's nothing I can do about it. When we covered our recent case with Kevin Green, I felt at the end as though everyone had done what they were supposed to do. And in this case, I feel like no one did what they were supposed to do. My feeling is, in in a perfect world, the prosecution would have said, Sure, we won't drag the families through this horrible trial. Tell them how their relatives were murdered inside their own home and how the plot was masterminded by their son, their brother. This this is horrible. And they dragged him through it just because they wanted the death penalty.
1: And now they're going to re-victimize the father because he's going to lose his only son.
0: And I, I don't see the worth in this. I don't see why you need to go through this. Bart or Thomas, as he wants to be called, isn't going to be remorseful. Applying the pressure of the death penalty against him isn't going to get him there. We already know that they tried doing a deal. Bart was going to admit to everything. Then he could serve the rest of his life in prison. And I don't see what's wrong with that. You're not really appeasing him. You're making it easy on so many people. Forget what Bart wants. This is about everyone else at this point. And his family, as far as I can see, Far and wide, we're all saying, just put him in prison. We don't want him put to death. But the state moved against him anyway. And because they had such a strong case, they said, let's do the death penalty. He deserves it.
1: And with the death penalty, you get automatic appeals, which cost a lot more than just housing somebody in prison. And you
0: drag this out. Yeah. I don't see the worth in this. Now, Justin and I talked about this quite a bit when I listened to Kent talk. And then I read the blog post from Thomas Whitaker. They just seem like two different people.
1: The way his father describes him and the way he portrays himself.
0: Right. And I'll give Thomas this. He's very outspoken. He says what's on his mind, even though I've read some things that he's written. And I would think his father wouldn't like what he said. Maybe he's just being real. And perhaps when he meets with his father, he doesn't get that deep. No. This is an unsatisfying case because... This young man, for whatever reason, decided to gun down his entire family, or at least he had his entire family gunned down, and then he tries to get away with it. He runs, he changes his identity, and then when he's caught, it's like casual city. I was unhappy, and I blame my family for everything, I don't really need the money, but there's nothing here to really hold on to. At the end of this case, I feel like Thomas Bart Whitaker is an incomplete human being, He's not a whole person. There's something wrong with him because he doesn't have the confidence that his brother has. He feels like he's always inadequate, but he's also really angry and he's too quick to move to violence, in my opinion, because there were multiple attempts, however serious you take each of them on his entire family between what, 2001 and 2003 Mm -hmm. and hear him tell it it's You say you're going to do these things, but you don't really know how serious it is until it actually happens. He says that, and again, it backs up my feeling that he's not taking anybody seriously. He likes to make it sound like this was all casual and it somehow came together, and it reminds me of the Pamela Smart case where she says, oh, well, it wasn't that serious. I wouldn't have done something like that. I
1: wasn't the trigger man.
0: Right, I didn't do this. Someone else pulled the trigger.
1: It's a level of dismissive evil that... You don't see very often, but I can't say that I question his dad's love of God or his own son because that just seems like a given to me.